welcome to the podcast in search of the perfect movie soundtrack. When the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Joshua Weber. I'm Heather Samples. And I'm Matt Lombardi. Join us this week as we dare to ask the tough questions. Is Eddie Vedder a jerk, or was he the only musician who read this script? Were Chinkos ever cool? And did the director of this movie even like this soundtrack? Nobody is taking dates. It's a bunch of guys going to a boxing match. That's it. Why are you looking at me like that? Because I know your friends. <laughs> They're the hormones of high school kids. I'll be home early, okay? Promise. What <laughs> do you say, fight fans? A night out on the town. A heavy traffic jam. Say something, I'm not going to miss this fight. And one wrong turn. We've circled this block about 300 times. Yeah, enough for this scenic route. What the hell was that? They got guns, John. You broke rule number one. Do not steal from me. Oh, boys, rule number two. No witnesses. Get a wife and a little girl, and I will get back to them tonight. Let's show these punks what we got. You better believe it. You're just another victim. You're just another victim, kid. Hey! You're just another victim. You're just another victim, kid. Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr., Dennis Leary. No, Frank, after I kill you, I think I'm going to pay a little visit on that wife of yours. Ah! Judgment Night. You coming? Hell yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's do this. Released on October 15th, 1993. Directed by Stephen Hopkins, who made Nightmare on Elm Street 5 and Predator 2. Um, Along with Emilio and Cuba, it also has Jeremy Piven and Stephen Dorff. And together... It is the story of four old friends in Chicago with tickets to the big heavyweight fight. They're looking to recapture their youth with a big boys' night out until they hit a traffic jam that forces them to steer their barred RV down the nearest exit to look for a shortcut. Unaware, as absolutely no one in the Chicago area would have been at that time, that they've driven directly into the Cabrini Green Housing Projects, which is the home of Candyman and probably one of the top three most dangerous neighborhoods in America in 1993. Will our boys survive? Not if Dennis Leary has anything to say about it. Heather, I know you were very excited for this week's pick. So, what did you think of (laughs) Judgment Night? Uh, The movie's shit. That's the the long version and the short version and the middle-sized version. There's really... I mean, we can talk about the specific ways in which the movie is shit, but at the end of the day, what you're watching is a a movie that's like if The Hangover weren't ever fun. (laughs) And deep urban Um, paranoia shot through all the characters. Oh, my God. And and what you're and what you're watching is like an, a a loose like barely narrativization of uh, of like a larger white panic about urban space mm. and black mm-hmm. bodies. That said, uh, I think one of the biggest crimes that the movie commits is its fucking pacing. Oh my god! 
It's how so... many times did you check? How many times did you check to see yeah. if it was if it was almost over? A lot, a lot of times. In part uh-huh. because it's imp- the only way to mark time in this movie is with the body count, and even that is actually not fat. It like doesn't have like a diehard body count. It doesn't have like a a, a like clip yeah. to it and like a a. a a, a forward movement. So you can go a long time before the next person dies, or you can go a short time before the next person dies. It's, it's just a terrible, terrible, terrible movie. I, I, I wish I had more to say about it than that, but I, I'm not sure that I do. I, I, I thought that might be the case. I like the pacing um, comment because usually you have a, a bunch of people and the obnoxious um, bad friend dies first. And then you're like, okay, here we go. They're all going to die. And then, spoiler alert, people get shot and don't die. So it doesn't even follow your classic predator setup where you're like, they're all going down until there's one man standing. Mono e Dennis Leary. (laughs) 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 I have to say, I have to say, I am always amazed at how comfortable Dennis Leary is doing anything. He's actually... Completely comfortable and pulling off being a bad guy. It's not a great movie at all, but for like what you have to do in these bad movies. And then I guess it makes sense. I've never seen the show, but he carried that fireman show forever mm-hmm. that uh, people liked. But I was just impressed. I was like, he's so comfortable. Maybe De- Dennis Leary's like, I should be here. I should be the star of this film. Like he just seems like. Oh, oh yeah. No, you're right. He's just ready for it, and he's not bad at it either. Like you wouldn't give him an Oscar, but you're like, you don't no, think he's he a has bad a actor. real uh, convincing aura of belief in the story and his place in the story, which is helpful because no one watching the movie believes in the story or in the idea that no. Dennis Leary is some kind of drug kingpin in in um, Cabrini Green. <laughs> Dennis Leary was really huge at that moment in time. He had just had a really successful, uh, I actually saw the comedy tour. It was like sold out all over the country. He was like regular, he had a regular bit on MTV. Oh yeah. yeah where, I remember uh, this. You know, like the bumpers, like, you know, he'd you're be watching smoking, MTV, he'd be but he, like, his thing was he would, Cindy Crawford and a Klondike bar and I'm coming in to see you. It was yes. Like this weird I don't joke. remember how he did it. Yeah. He'd give a rant. His whole bit, he was always accused of ripping all that off from Bill Hicks. Ripping it off of what, Joshua? From Bill Hicks. Oh, really? And like, so this movie, you can tell they're kind of letting him run with it because he's a big deal at the time. So they're like, yeah, you know what? If you want, because he says some uh, things that his character wouldn't say, you know, that are just <laughs> like, obviously Dennis Leary punching up the script. You know what I hate? I hate whiners, you know? I hate people who just complain, complain, complain. Had a guy in a joint one time, sell next to me, and I used to, just used to yap about everything. He used to yap about the food, and yap about the guards, and yap about this, and yap about that, and yap, 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 all night long, fucking yap, yap, yap. Like a fucking 747, you know what I mean? Like an engine stuck right between your ears, and you can't get away from it because he's right next to you, you know what I mean? But he does kind of the same thing, and I believe in its Demolition Man, I believe, when they go down to the sub-Earth Oh, and yeah. he's like the leader of the sub earth gang and he and it's the same thing they just find a reason for him to do his spiel i don't really remember yeah, what it is but i'm sure it's something makes like y'all people him, up there with your taco bell and you you know whatever um that was a thing that was a thing that he was doing yeah, really and, well at the time and so they obviously were like yeah run with it here yeah yeah he was willing to do that anywhere as long as they let him wear that coat his leather coat. oh he had that's definitely key yeah <laughs> He should have, but it wasn't smoking his big thing. Yes. He doesn't smoke in this movie. That's true. Uh, yeah, I don't it's know. It's bullshit. He should have been smoking when he threw Jeremy Pittman off a building. Spoiler. 
That might be the best part of the movie. Jeremy fucking Piven, who, by the way, you guys did uh, did not yeah, mention uh, Jeremy Piven before we watched this movie. And even though I was like super stoked to do it because I loved the soundtrack when it came out, and then I never actually saw this movie and yeah. had no idea Jeremy Piven was in it. <laughs> I was trying to browse it when he pulls up. I'm like, is that? No. Oh, wait. He, I had no, Yes. I was in the same boat. That is Jeremy Piven. Mm-hmm. He's the same guy. He's been the yeah. same guy the whole goddamn time, it turns out. And he's still got some of the classic moves. I, I was in the, I was, <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm going to put this movie on and I'm going to say to myself, oh, that's what this movie is. And then I was like, what the fuck? And then I was like, and then Cuba Gooden Jr. gets out of the van with Jeremy Piven. And then uh, Stephen Dorff rolls up. And I was like, very miscast. Oh, yeah. Very miscast. They put him in those cutoff gloves because he's like a tough guy. Fucking cutoff gloves. But he's like, doesn't seem like a tough guy at all. They're like poor man's Ethan Hawke. Those come in handy, though, when they need to buffer the sound of using the butt of the gun to break that lock open. <laughs> absolutely nothing will buffer the sound of a gun breaking a lock like a uh a, a cheap fingerless glove fingerless <laughs> l- l- cotton glove yeah and the the like heart and soul <laughs> cuba getting jr and emilio estevez both put into some of the line readings uh, you almost feel bad for him because because of the material but they commit so hard at moments that i was like guys this is not the movie. There are moments when you can be legitimately frightened for uh, whatever, like, orbital nerves hold Cuba Gooding Jr.'s eyes <laughs> in his skull. <laughs> they, they are big. One of the actors in Dennis Leary's gang um, is Everlast from House of Pain. And I was wondering says, that. That's true. He says that uh, that wow. Every first of all, everybody hates this movie. Yeah. And Everlast, who is in it, hates it and hated it while they were making it, and said the director hated him because he just kept saying how stupid it was <laughs> that somehow there was this gang of white dudes who were controlling Cabrini Green. Which is just unbelievable. I always, I always think when they make these like urban fear movies, and it's so obvious they were like, okay, we don't want to make black versus white, and the black guys be the bad guys and the white guys. But it feels like that's where the script or the idea came from, and then they inserted white guys to try to be what they think of being more like open minded or something. And the white guys feel like they're just standing in for what the writer or director secretly are thinking would be black guys. It's always this weird dilemma for me when I watch it. Could be true. Because it kind of doesn't make sense. This might be a good moment to add. The soundtrack was a bit of an experiment at the time. It's like putting together uh, a hip-hop artist with rock musicians and letting them run with it, letting them make their own song, write their own music. Most of them produced their own song. And despite it being a bit of an experiment, it was a hit. No, it went to number 17 on the Billboard charts. And not for nothing, but, you know, performer-wise, making it one of the, you know, only really integrated albums on the charts in that year or probably, you know, many years on both ends of that year. I mean, we could spend all night talking about the way that this movie and, and its soundtrack imagine race. 
and how they imagine like what it means to uh, what integration is um, or or what like intersectionalism is like the ways that the that the soundtrack versus the movie are understanding what it means to be black or white in America are kind of like a f- pretty fascinating yeah. paradox which be- because the movie treats that question so differently than the than mm-hmm. the soundtrack does um which I think is like the one thing I can tell myself about why in God's name you might have commissioned all this fucking amazing music only to like use maybe a grand total of 24 right. bars of it across two hours of n- right. nothing. The only time they use it pretty much other than like in the beginning, for the most part, it's whenever you need to introduce another group of people. So like if somebody else in a car will be listening to the music from the soundtrack or like if they mm-hmm. roll up on a what might be a dangerous group of people in a one corner of their travels, they might be listening to one of the songs. It's just completely... Uh-huh. Um, not part of the movie, and I'm pretty sure um, the director had no interest in this soundtrack whatsoever and that it was thrust on him. I've read a little bit about it, and I'm also surmising this from watching the movie, that this was not something he ever pictured for the movie. He gets Alan Alan Silvestri, is that his name? Yeah, I was just going to bring him up. Yeah, Yeah. so a really, really big-time um, guy to do scores. I mean, he wants this to be who who he wants this to be, you know, a speed or something like that. Right now, as yeah. a director, he is not capable of making that. But um, that's clearly what he thinks he's going to do, and then suddenly he's thrust with this thing, which is way better. Hey yo, pack my bags because I'm out of here. Mama don't love me and my mama don't care. Read the papers, the headlines say. Washed up rapper got song Lingo's busted while the guitar sways B-side copy for the radio plays for something I knew I blew the whole fandango when the drum programmer wore I want to talk about the song on this soundtrack Of which there are a whole lot of really fantastic options Like, I think this is one of the best soundtracks that we've talked about Or even thought about talking about It's fantastic um, it's so good. And there and there are like a number of these pairings, like Sir Mix a Lot and Mud Honey. They're just like these these marriages uh that are astonishing. There's like Faith No More and the, these kids Booyah tribe and there's De La Soul and Teenage Fan Club and uh fucking the Faith No More one is great. We're gonna c I hope we come back to that. But but the Ice Tea and Slayer. <laughs> yes. I love that one. Slayer. But the but the one that I, I think uh you guys probably know that stands out most to me is uh the the Sonic Youth and Cypress Hill song. I love you, Mary Jane. This is a good one. It is, right? Here's the thing about this song. 
The minute that you get through the like first maybe 30 seconds of like weird tweaky guitar, you like immediately get into this like nod your head groove that is <laughs> almost anything you want it to be. It could be like close your eyes on the couch and, you know, take a nap. It could be smoke a lot of weed, obviously. It could be fucking it could be like driving at night like there's this this like did you test all these hypotheses i think over the course of the last uh (laughs) 30 years i have come close to testing all these hypotheses yes and uh it's a longitudinal study matt um and i and i think that like it's 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 just impossible not to love the way that it makes you feel so quickly but uh even if that weren't true, it's got a fucking Kim Gordon, you guys. It's got Kim Gordon. Yeah. She is a 90s crush. For Kim me. Gordon and Kathleen Hanna are the two most important white women of the 1990s. It's, I'm immediately like trying to catalog. Right. Yeah, try, try to I find. I got nothing. Try to find. I got Meg so, Ryan. I got nothing. Yeah, you got nothing. <laughs> um, uh Kim Gordon is the, she was the queen. She was the pinnacle. She was everything you ever wanted. She had her little ex-girl fashion label with its like storefront on Lafayette. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She had Thurston. She had her own like integrity. She had, she had it fucking all. Um, And, and she like, and she also was so accessible and, and brought us all along for the ride between like, sassy magazine mm. kind of like intimacy with fans in a in a like pre-creator economy community building influencer internet age she had the ability to to like show a young fan that she was listening and accessible and available to whatever kind of dialogue they might give her or engage with her in and that was like totally un kind of uh I mean, it was totally seductive. And then you add on to that fucking eyeliner. De- well, that, sure, yes. But also DJ Muggs and <laughs> Cypress Hill. And it's just, I mean, it's like, this shit is dank. It's the dankest fucking song. It's so, so good. The recording sessions were like the the rock musicians coming in and being like, we don't know how sampling works. We've never seen how people use a drum machine as their like primary instrumentation in a recording session. And the hip hop artists are coming in and being like, why is everybody sitting down and playing their instruments and expecting something <laughs> to happen? Um and and at the beginning, that's kind of what's going on with Cypress Hill and Sonic Youth too. They're they're not quite connecting. Uh, and Cypress Hill get gets on the phone with their manager and is like, "Are you? Can we go? This isn't fun. This is not good." And manager agent rightly smartly says, "Like, come on, buddy, give it a try. You can do it." Uh, and they stick it out. And then, oh, Kim Gordon starts uh, singing the hook from the song, Sugar Come By and Get Real High. And 
immediately everybody's like, oh, okay, we get this. We can do this. This is going to be fun. And from from there on, it like falls into this beautiful place where they're totally jamming and enjoying it. I do think that one like small footnote here that I would feel, I would feel like it's like unethical not to mention this. Kim Gordon describes the the moment of figuring out what she was going to do on the track as like I think Thurston gave me a suggestion and it worked which is like such a, a perfect encapsulation of how Thurston and Kim created Sonic Youth a, as a band and how they created their relationship and their marriage yeah. as people and how that how those two things became like completely enmeshed and inseparable and how they spent years and years and years together in both capacities and then ended up breaking up um in like what I would argue is maybe like the first fantastic example of uh an un, a conscious uncoupling like Goop and Paltrow. Goop Paltrow has nothing on uh, on Thurston and Kim for for conscious uncoupling. Um, but but Thurston gives a suggestion that Kim finds finds her way through, which I have a feeling is a lot of what the Sonic Youth experience was for Kim. Was Thurston giving her a suggestion that that works because of the way she uses that suggestion? I was going to say that uh, of the stories, it sounds like there there was. Of of the groupings that made it to the soundtrack, there was a couple failed ones that didn't make it to the soundtrack. Um, this was at least for part of it the most uncomfortable one. Most of them, the stories are people having a lot of fun, kind of really getting into this idea of in being in a studio, doing new things with new people in new ways. But it does sound like this was really uncomfortable at the beginning. And, you know, that kind of doesn't surprise me. I feel like of all of these bands, I could imagine Sonic Youth being the most... I don't know, separate from maybe what was going on in popular rap music or something like that. I mean, that's not really fair. Well, at least all their members showed up. Eddie Vedder didn't even bother to come. And the guitar player from Faith No More didn't show up for theirs. But anyway, so I guess I, I, it just sort of, for me, it seems like it kind of rings true that like Sonic Youth would be like the bookish, uh, you know, uh, you know, indie nerdy insular you know they're not there to party right and it seems like that was like what a lot of them were there for but then it does seem like they ended up actually all having a great time and kim does talk about how much enormous amounts of weed they smoked that's what i was gonna say before i think they all just let go and get stoned together or that's what the myth sounds like when you hear and about of it. all of the like the, the like white side of the of the integrated combinations on this album uh all of the rock side like i think sonic youth was definitely the most intellectualized of all of those bands right like i mean that's probably fair to say i, I don't think faith no more is going to be competing on that front i i don't i don't know much about those guys i think matt might get a set because i'm pretty sure they're new jersey's own but uh well you know i don't know you might be right i feel like they get some retrospective intellectualism but sonic youth um, people discuss them like that from yeah, the beginning. Yeah, they're scholars. Because they were doing yeah. art rocky Total experimental art rock. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would be willing to bet that it's probably a lot of people's favorite on this. I think it's a real standout track. Um, maybe in part because it might be the only female voice on the whole thing. And I think it's a really 
good. Um, oh, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. I, I'm just now looking at the list and thinking about that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. And I think that that, that kind of stands out when you're listening to it. Like it is, it fits Cypress Hill's beat really well. And and like it's like her voice on this is a really remarkable part of the soundtrack for sure. Oh my God, you're right, Joshua. Yeah. Fucking Kim Gordon. She's the only girl in every room she's ever been in. And this would be a very, a very male room as well. That's what I think. So in listening to this, it's a nice break because I'm not accusing the bands of this, but what becomes of rap rock? Just, it just, it feels like not these specific bands, but the sound just goes straight to suburban, dare I say, toxic masculinity. Because it just takes like the hard parts of guitars, hard parts of ways to sing, less melodic, more angry. Well, we're getting there in this story. I wonder, this is a question maybe you know, Joshua, did, was the movie made and then they put the soundtrack to it or was it, were they going on simultaneously? They're going on simultaneously. Um, basically, uh, Happy Walters is the, at this point, the manager of Cypress Hill. Yeah. Why? I'm just going to, this is a very vague open question. Why were there such huge fans, I guess? You'd call it the typical grunge bands. But in looking this up, specifically bands like Mud Honey, Sonic Youth, Pearl Jam, they all had members who were like hardcore Cypress Hill fans. Why is that? I mean, it probably is. I mean, there's probably something telling in the fact that um, Cypress Hill is really, really into rock music. And, you know, and that's sort of what leads to this because their manager is the one who puts this soundtrack together. And, you know, Cypress Hill takes a lot of... uh a credit for for put planting that idea in his head but so they're making beats and sounds that are in part not not explicitly but at least implicitly inspired by the fact that they really loved punk and and really hard rock and all that stuff and um you know the rock musicians were hearing that and it just sounds like also they were the hottest new kids on the block like they were so cool like even even uh, their man, the guy who becomes their manager, talks about when he saw them and and like kind of the light bulb moment. And one of them was that they were singing about getting high, and this was right in the middle of of uh, just say no, you know. And that it was like this is cool. Like these guys are actually these guys are leaning into smoking weed, which is like not a thing people were doing at the time eh, publicly, but privately everybody was. So it was like, yeah, this is a new idea. Like these guys are actually edgy. Weed is the great uniter. I mean, it was it was game changing. It was genre changing, and I can understand why the the like people on the fringes of that uh, like Pacific Northwest, like Southern California approach to what was rock music in the early '90s would have been um, really into Cypress Hill in a way that they might not have been able to like quite 
wrap their minds around um, other black music, other hip hop music. Happy Walters is floating around this world. He's floating around a lot of worlds, apparently, at the time. And they um, are making this urban movie, right? And so the music supervisor for this movie, not Alan Silvestri in the score, but the music supervisor basically doesn't have an idea. And so the producers, not the director, the producers say, hey, what do you think? What do, What's on your mind? And Happy Walters, who has been inspired by sort of seeing how much Cypress Hill is into rock and has been thinking about sort of this combination and uh, comes up with this idea, basically. It's basically his idea, although the guys in Cypress Hill and House of Pain um, also had a lot to do with it, which is to say, what if we were to put bands together with rap? The answer to your question, though, is that... Um, it's something that a producer did and the director has nothing to do with. And I think it's happening simultaneously, but also like completely separate so that the director is just being handed this idea and this thing. And he didn't ever want it. He didn't want a movie that had this stuff in it. And he does. He has no clue what to do with it. I wonder how he feels about it now. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I saw somewhere that well he did I I didn't see a criticism about it necessarily but he did call it a real absolute total bomb the which movie. he's right about. But what's funny is conversely the bands themselves seem as disinterested with his movie. Yes, they all hate it. Then he is with their music and when you do some research they're like cool let's get together hang out in the studio and see what happens. It's not like, you know, infamously Neil Young sitting in front of Jim Jarmusch's dead man with an electric guitar playing to it. Or, you know, you hear those stories about that. They're just having fun, it sounds like, in a studio, experimenting with these sounds and each other and mixing stuff. And at one point, who is it I was reading and they said, fuck it, let's just call our song Judgment Night. And like, I don't even know if it showed up in the movie. It has nothing to do with the movie. But they thought that was funny. That's the Biohazard and Onyx song. Yeah, the Biohazard one. And he says, we didn't give a fuck. Or he says something like, fuck it. The quote I was reading in the research. And he was like, let's just call it Judgment Night. I found that really funny. Which shows there's just this disconnect, which is also ironic because we're talking about mixing genres. You know? But the, the you touched on the, the, uh, the thing that they keep talking about is like, let's get in the studio and see what happens. I, some of them were a little bit of an odd pairing. Um, Rage Against the Machine. Um, they tried to get them on this soundtrack. They did. They worked on a song with Tool. It's um, there's a demo of it that you can hear, and I listened to a little bit of it. It's unbelievably terrible. You can see why they all abandoned it. It's 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 really really bad. Um, although you know Tool fans are going to come after me for that because it is on like Tool sites and, and Tool fans are like, you can hear how incredible Maynard is, and <laughs> you know, and I'm like, it's a really bad demo, and you can see why they all abandoned it. I don't think we have to take a single Tool fan seriously about anything. I don't know, man. They'll cut your Tool army is going to come after they're you. They're hardcore. They're, they're, they're very hardcore. They dudes. had that one cool claymation video. That's all I'll give them. Why? Yeah, but they got a, a perfect circle and uh, uh, I don't know. They got puss puss a foot <laughs> I don't know. They can they can they can they can go to our social media and and yell at us. Yeah, I, I welcome it. <laughs> all right, to um. Kind of change the speed on this love fest over this uh, soundtrack. I would claim that because Heather's giving me a dirty look already, but they can't see it on a podcast. Um, the first song and the last song are the weakest songs and could even be cut, and I wouldn't care. The gems are all in the middle. The book ends, get rid of them, they suck. And one of them is Pearl Jam. 
So Heather, you like this? Uh, no, I don't like this. I think no. it's one of I think it's one of the weaker songs. I think it's definitely one of the weaker songs. I think this one and I think the first one and the last ones suck. I'm talking about just another victim. The, yeah, the first one is Helmet and House of Pain. Oh, the Helmet one. Okay, so I would. So some of these songs work magically. I love the De La Soul one too, Heather. Um, and some you just find they're finding a riff, they're finding something to say over it, and it kind of feels like it should be a B side somewhere, you know, or a, a a demo thing or something that like later included in a box set. And the real thing is definitely one of them. But this raises a greater question of pop music that I think I need to pose. Pearl Jam were big Cypress Hill fans, specifically um, the bassist and one of the guitarists. And when they were approached by it, Eddie Vedder was like neutral, apparently. And he was like, yeah, I don't care. Whatever. If you guys want to do it, that's I've cool. I've got a vegan cookie and, and eat. I'm busy. <laughs> exactly. Apparently, apparently he was like, um, he went surfing. And it's interesting, too, because he was thinking, well, I'm not going to be the vocals here. And he does play guitar later on, but at that point, I don't think he played any instruments. So maybe he was thinking, I'm not... Oh, he was thinking, like, if there's an MC, then what what job is there for me? What, what good am oh, I? Or maybe he didn't want to step on their toes. Or maybe he... Maybe at that point, they're being offered a million things a day, and he's like, you guys do what you want. Anyway, the other... A few members of Pearl Jam were very excited because they were huge Cypress Hill fans, so they go into the studio and cut the track. And the track listing says name of the song is Real Thing featuring Pearl Jam and Cypress Hill. But let me pose this question to you, which we were talking about before briefly. If Jeff Amen, the bassist of Pearl Jam, lays down a bass line in the middle of the forest and there's no Eddie Vedder there to sing to it, <laughs> does it make a sound? Can you be Pearl Jam? Well, it doesn't make a sound as good as the Eddie ones Vedder. Kim Gordon makes. <laughs> That's true. That is true. But, you know, the story of Pearl Jam, as I remember, is the guitarist, bassist, guys in the band, they were in other bands. They got together, made some instrumental tracks, sent the tape out. Eddie Vedder put vocals to it. They fell madly in love and became Pearl Jam. So they, they needed each other. It also sounds like one of the things you're interested in, in the fact that Vedder never showed up and like didn't participate in this, is that... Everybody else in this project was actually kind of like pushing to the edges of their comfort zones in a lot of ways. And they were doing that like in the studio. They were doing that in the way that they were uh, agreeing to the whole thing. Like all of it was kind of at, at the edge of what seemed predictable and knowable to all of these musicians. And they all went with it, and it wasn't easy, and some of the songs didn't land or get released, like uh, Rage, and who, who, who is the, who's, Joshua, who's with the Tool, right, 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 fucking Tool. See, they're so fucking forgettable. Um, and yet we have Vedder, who has already, even by 93, let alone later, established himself as this, like, very authentic, true to himself, like, moral center, really, like, committed to a certain kind of, like, mindfulness in the world as, as, as like, a, a person and as an, as an artist. And he's not able to imagine a world where his role in his band has the ability to flex to meet up with Cypress Hill. 
like in some ways it sounds to me like what what you're interested in or at least what you've made me interested in about the fact that Vetter doesn't show up on on the Pearl Jam Cypress Hill track is that everybody else is game and doing this thing and finding a way through it to make something new um and and Vetter can't do it yeah i i would love to know the answer to that and is it as simple as he's like oh i'm not into this genre or i don't know about this genre you guys are more into it than me or is there something bigger going on because the other thing we have to remember is people's music taste wasn't as eclectic people really define themselves by what they listen to and they'd stay in their lane i remember True. i mean, when, remember uh, after kurt cobain killed himself and we found out that he was on the edge of a collaboration with michael stipe which nowadays feels like oh my god if only we had that album yeah. how fucking good would it be but in the moment there were people who were like michael stipe are you yeah. athens georgia college right. rock yeah, what yeah. the fuck and then when you you know bigger things the old, you know rock versus disco if people were really into hip-hop yes. they're like that's my thing i don't listen to alternative you'd yeah. make fun <laughs> of other genres now it's i remember when uh odelay by beck came out and he just mixed everything together everyone was just very intrigued and in and interested and i think that's when it all kind of ended and then everyone but that i feel like this was also part of that definition i guess we saw that in the 90s all the genre blending that went on except for eddie vetter except <laughs> for eddie vetter <laughs> <laughs> so we need to we so we need to know has eddie vetter ever um done anything with a uh, a rap or hip-hop group or is this a, a personal lifelong boycott that that we're only just discovering <laughs> yeah the closest he's ever come was tinkering with his ukulele. That's that's the only other genre. No, I don't know. I'm trying to think of that, of what, I don't know. It would also be really funny to hear him in like a place of rapper hip hop. Just because he, his, his style just seems difficult to mesh with it, but that's what would make it more interesting, obviously, which everyone was doing. But Eddie... We'll have him on next week and ask him. I think he I think he goes by Ed based on the conversations that I see everybody who knows him. They always call him Ed. So just just so you know. All right. You know. Like when David Lynch is like, I was just meditating with Ed with our transcendental meditation. Right. Uh, or when uh, people talk about Robert De Niro and they always call him Bobby. Oh, God. Bob and Marty. <laughs> Bob and Marty are coming out with a new one. I hate when people say that shit. Unless you've had dinner with these people, you're not allowed to do that. Edward. Vetter. Uh, it's time for Joshua's yeah. song pick. Joshua, where are you going? Okay. Um, you know, this is a really good question. And there's, uh, I mean, I guess it's probably apparent. I don't know that I've said it full on that I love this soundtrack. I've been listening to it for weeks, um, pretty regularly. And I'm not sick of it. It's great. Are you sick of the helmet There's song? a couple songs. You skipped you skip the first track, ah. right? <laughs> I, don't, Just another I, don't, I don't love it. I don't love it, but I think there's a drill in it. Let's just, you know what? Before we get to mine, let's do this really quick. There's a point in the middle of the song that I think gets pretty cool. I, I think the first part of, I think the first half of the song the is not drill. very good. Um, 
But give me just a moment here to get to this part where I think the song takes a pretty cool turn. And one of the things I wanted to talk about is how many unbelievable missed opportunities there are in this movie to use really cool parts of these songs. Especially since this song Um, is about victimhood, which is like all the movie is trafficking in minute by minute. There's so many of these things. And I think here this song um, goes from being, I agree, a pretty lame song to getting kind of cool. And especially if you think of it in terms of like this movie and what the setting is and like, I mean, not the movie we saw, but like the movie that you could imagine in your head. So this is the part where it kind of switches in the middle. You bleed yourself, now you're pointing fingers. How I rob and raped you, bruised and scraped you. But those are just lies, because in your eyes, you've been victimized. It's how you size it up, you disguise it up, and try to make it look real. To cover up the low self-esteem you feel. How is this not playing as people are running down an alley? It really could have. All those scenes where all those scenes where more paper is blowing around on the street than like after September eleventh. <laughs> <laughs> But the 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 it almost sounds like an alarm going off in the distance and like heart pounding and like the whole thing. You think that can be a cinematic moment, um, but like you said, the director wasn't interested in using these. He opens with the most accessible song, which I think is great, the De La Soul Teenage Fan Club one. I agree, but let me make a point about that one, and I guess we'll just talk about the movie and the songs here for a minute because I have <laughs> I have some of these thoughts here. So I think this song with Teenage Fan Club and De La Soul is fantastic, and it's not my choice, but I love it. And it opens with the movie that really uh, suburban, bucolic. I mean, overly so. It's it's a yeah. cheesy beginning. I mean, there's like little kids uh, bike through the leaves, and the neighbor gives them the hey kids, and and there's like this random businessman. <laughs> It's just supposed to be like a beautiful suburban day, right? Although, and this song, wait a second. Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, We've go got to pause here for just a second since you're bringing us to like the scene that opens the movie. If you go into yes. this movie not knowing anything about what it's about, you've just seen like the the cover, right? You You haven't read the synopsis. You haven't seen the trailer. You just know it's like, oh yeah, a movie that came out in the early 90s and it's got Emilio Estevez in it or whatever. That's yeah. And you watch this opening scene, you are immediately being asked to understand whether this is a white neighborhood or a black neighborhood. The number of like white neighbors and black neighbors who are who are like interacting with one another in this like very- The two businessmen. Yeah, and the and the yes. children like we we see like a, a a white family and then we see a black family and we they're sort of separate but they're sort of interacting like if if you're trying to understand like is this a, a what point is this made you can like sense that there's an an argument being made in I this have a movie theory. but no answers I, about what that I argument a, might I actually be. I have a simple be. theory. What's going on? They're making an urban paranoia movie, but in the early '90s they're aware of race. When they used to make these movies. It would be a white guy and everyone would be scared of the black urban people and then they'd go on a killing spree. They want to make that same movie, but they're like, but we want to make a non-racist one. 
So they're like, look, we're not I racist. Think, yeah. Dennis Leary is the bad guy and I his agree. gang has Everlast in it. And look, this neighborhood is a racial utopia kind of thing. And they're like, okay, now let's get to the chain link fences and alleyways right. and scary corrupt city where you make one more I think it's cover, wrong move and you lose your life. I think it's cover for the fact that the movie is going to take place in Cabrini Green and Cabrini Green is going to be the bad part of the movie. And even though they populated it with Dennis Leary and the white bad guys, they know. They know that they've got a loaded proposition here, that it's like the white suburban um, friends plus Cuba Gooding. That's another move uh, they go make. It's to this very strange. Neighborhood, right? Totally. And so I do think that super interracial um neighborhood is them trying to um you know cover their ass for and the soundtrack is interesting everyone's interested in the subject but it's all over the place and there's no cohesion to it which is interesting actually matt i think that's a really good point and like worth dwelling on for a moment that like between the soundtrack and this movie there's there seems to be this kind of striving to play in this space and like understand what what like a racialized experience of living in a city it is and yet like even though everybody's trying hard and like digging around in the mess and the muck they're like actually not coming up with much that makes a whole lot of sense no which, none of it makes sense which i think is like in some ways i like i kind of admire the uh the like living in the mess of it rather than than giving like a short and tidy answer. But I like it when the bands are doing it because you feel the spirit of it there. But when the movie mm-hmm. attempts it, it's mm-hmm. just like, and the other way, like there's, it's, it's supposed to be a thriller. The way to describe this movie, it made so much sense that this director made nightmare on Elm street five. It's basically a horror movie without any horror. Like one time there was it's, even like a loud synth and people are coming around the corner yeah. and there were so many horror movie moments and shots. Yeah. And then like Dennis Leary strolls out with a black coat and starts spouting off like random Dennis Leary stuff. And like, it should be a killer clown or something. It's so weird the way this movie's <laughs> made. It's like a horror movie without any horror. And it makes you wonder like what the original project was. And then maybe they tried to soften it or tried to be cool about it or tried to be give you like the new version so i don't know it's lost i think that that the beginning illustrates in my opinion one of the ways in which you can see how the director had no idea what to do with this music and so at that beginning they're about to play this teenage fan club and de la soul song which actually the heart of this song is really perfect for the scene it's like chill and friendly and it's like a nice day in this neighborhood but it begins with this silly like little voice, right? Traveling at the speed of <laughs> Why start with that traveling at the speed of light? That's silly. Like you're trying to get us into the movie. Let me show you where the movies should start. Traveling at the speed of light. Now here, that's where you start the movie. It. <laughs> hey yo kids what's up remember when i used to be dope yeah i own a pocket full of fame yeah that do-do-do-do is like so it's so it's like a warm sunny sun like sunday afternoon yeah 
This is nice, right? Like, we're into the movie now. <laughs> Joshua's going to recut this movie. Yep. I guess Oscar Goldman got mad because I got loose circuits. I mean, a mother goose with the eggs that seem to be. There's a lot of songs on here that I really like, and I was very tempted to pick Missing Link by Dinosaur Jr. and Del the Homo, Funky Homo Sapien because I think it's a great song, and I um, am a huge, huge fan of Dinosaur Jr. There's a mm-hmm. great uh, video on YouTube of them playing this song with Mike Watt on bass and uh, which Beastie Boy plays drums? I think it's Mike, Mike D. D, I think. Wait, does Mike D play the drums on the recording of... I don't. I don't think he plays oh, on the okay. recording. I could be wrong oh, okay. about that. I don't think he does. Got Let it. Him. Yeah, it's just a late night appearance. But it does seem like he was a connection I think here. He's I just think Mike sitting D in for a late night did show, know Del the Funky Homo Sapien and um, and kind of put them together. But I am going to pick. Um, and I also was tempted to pick Judgment Night by Biohazardonics because I think that's a pretty cool song. And how you made a movie called Judgment Night and you didn't put such a cool song in the movie, I mean, prominently, <laughs> uh, just blows my mind. But I'm going to pick, you were talking about um, um, this movie not wanting to deal with um, issues of the city. I'm paraphrasing you a lot there. Yeah, Heather. but that's a good summary. I like it. But I'm going to pick the song that is facing that a little bit and it's called <laughs> Disorder by Slayer and Ice-T and it is a cover of a number of exploited songs it's like an ex- a medley of exploited songs and it's useful to know that the title that they kind of call it amongst themselves is Disorder slash LA 92 what and you could hear kind of why that that means something here Love it. <laughs> I do too. I mean, it's really like the expression of what it's saying, right? It feels exactly like what it's yeah. saying. I mean, this is, I mean, especially when you think of, okay, it's called LA 92. Oh my God. God, this is what it sounds like when a city is burning down, and and it and it, it's like a medley. So there's other parts to the song. I um, had the experience of seeing Body Count at whichever Lollapalooza it was. I think it was the first one, and it was <laughs> mind blowing because again, this is back when there was like a, 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 a you didn't expect to see Ice T come out and do some Ice T songs, and then these guys come out and suddenly it's like a thrash metal band and place went absolutely crazy. I mean, it was, it was truly incredible. And so it definitely lets you know that like, no ice T is old school LA punk rocker. Like he's got that in him. And this song I think is really cool at, at doing that. I don't always love that kind of really, really overt sort of punk rock like that, but I think there's a place for it. And this one is really good. And it's interesting that I keep saying punk because yeah, you know, Slayer, that's another thing. Um, these bands, I, I'm not a big metal it's fan. It's more metal than punk. Um, I don't really like 
some of these bands much. Yeah, but no, but the Exploited is a punk band, so they're doing a punk song. And yeah. Ice T is pretty fucking punk, guys. Yeah, and but I but I don't really like some of these bands that much, but I like what they do with here. You know, it's sort of like that Anthrax yeah. Public Enemy um, song that came out. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a cool thing. I don't listen to Anthrax, but that's kind of cool. This is another one. I I don't like Slayer. I don't listen to Slayer, but man, they sound right here. And there's a couple bands like that, too. I think the Faith No More song has the same sort of thing going on. Yeah, this made me think, should I go listen to some Slayer, actually? It's pretty hard, man. Like, when I was listening to this, I was like, hmm, maybe I should get into Slayer, finally. (laughs) Um, I said in the beginning about how we're at the start of a change. And in a lot of ways, it's a good change, because I do think that this began to... Um, bring together some worlds that felt really separate. And I think they felt less separate after this to a lot of people involved. Um, not just because of this record, but sort of that was going on in other people's um, uh, yeah, spheres and I, too. Yeah, I but feel like there's also bad that comes of this. The same manager, Happy Walters, who puts this <laughs> together is more or less responsible for the rap rock you were talking about. That's the problem with great power. You go either way. <laughs> He goes on to create, or I create is the wrong word, but that's, I guess that, that tells you what I feel about some of those bands. He goes on to take this idea and make a gajillion dollars off of it. Um, Happy Walter's record label is Immortal Records, and that also becomes then the home to Corn and Incubus. Oh, Incubus. Other- Fuck. <laughs> You're right. Yes. That um, does suck. So <laughs> it's like when this went wrong, it became. Um, like Fred Durst and shit. You know, there's like five corn records, five Incubus records, um, and, you know, a bunch of bands I don't really know as well also, but this, the line is very direct from uh, this album to the enormous, enormous thing that took over MTV and caused people to wear pants that were way too baggy. And Whoa, play- Joshua. <laughs> Well, uh, don't, don't you remember, what were they called? Those Jinkos or whatever? Do you remember those? Yeah, I remember. I, oh. I saw their underwear. Those you can see the, their underwear. Those, I, always, I thought, wait, what? come on, Jinkos are really I, no, fun no, no, to no. dance. Baggy in. pants that that, that spans genres. We're definitely baggy pants. No, do you remember? Everyone had baggy pants. Yes, Jinkos. Do you know they were like? Yeah, I knew. Everyone knows it. I I worked at a mall in New Jersey. They looked like you were wearing like the biggest skirt you could possibly wear. And Man, like all the I club guess, kids in Baltimore wore yeah. them when I was in college. There's a, there's a key age difference happening between us here, I guess. <laughs> Even though we're only a couple years because at but the pants, at no, the but time, pants get big and skinny time, throughout time. That That's what they do. Just the probably the worst fashion thing I'd ever seen. I still think that. Uh I I I, I admire the Chinkos. I think that they are doing their own thing. Just having bag saggy <laughs> pants was just in in any. I, I, I it bothers genre, me that you're linking Jinkos with baggy pants. Bugle boys were baggy pants. I mean, like, there's lots of baggy <laughs> pants in the world. I'm thinking of like the boxer thing. That's a total. That, I'm not talking about sagging. Out. I'm talking about cool. Jinkos. Yeah, Jankos yes. were like yes. two skirts Before. with a fly in the middle <laughs> and denim. Yeah, and I never like had a pair. Every but now I want every one. queer kid in Baltimore wore them. In wow, in the, so Joshua hates queer people now too. You're throwing that out there. I see. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yep. I'll go back in and edit a Jinko a trigger warning. <laughs> but the point anyway, is anyway, you're right. Corn Incubus, indeed, Matt, toxic masculinity. This album was a huge success. Um, very popular. A lot of other movies started to make albums like this. Um, 
uh, soundtracks like this. And uh, so it was a proven idea. It was a proven commodity. And then he said, okay, let's keep going with it. And he goes on and is basically one of the main people responsible for that, that late 90s, early 2000s stuff of Woodstock 99 lore. Um, he's, he's, he's a big part of that. The Communications Act of 1996 basically reduced regulation and made gave people the ability to just buy up radio stations everywhere. And then corporations controlled the radio airwaves and stuck to the same kind of music. And that's why, if you notice, there's a big drop by 1997 in cool shit going on that you can like maybe catch on MTV, whether it's late at night or whenever. Um, kind of thing. And people often blame that for um, those whole fun, I don't know, what would you call it? Whatever that moment was, alternative everything moment that was going on. And when you look at the top singles, they're really strange and weird. It's like the butthole surfers. And then you might have, you know, Nirvana, and then you have this weird folk song, and then you have rap, and then you have rap and rock mixing together, and you have hip hop, and you have everything going on. And then regulation goes away, telecommunications is controlled, and then by the end of the 90s, it looks like what corporations wish we liked, and it's all that Britney Spears boy band bullshit is back. I think it's, this is some really good Professor Matting. Is it? Is this Professor Matt? I think this is. No. (laughs) I have have a whole other thing. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. It's like, that was only the first week of my syllabus, and there's much more to go. Man, I didn't... Everybody I buckle did, the fuck up. I didn't even prep for that one. <laughs> you know, the 1996 Communications Act. Right, yeah. All right. <laughs> I know you guys always argue with my premise, but everyone name their favorite Communications Act in American <laughs> <laughs> No, I just want to give some context because I was very amused. I love looking back and seeing, okay, what were people buying? What were the big albums being pushed? What was everybody want? And I was looking at Billboard magazine's top albums of 1993. This existed in 1993. And what was existing around it was really a interesting vision of america what was going on number one well, will you help help us guess help us guess give us a clue we want to guess one. all right number one was a soundtrack this is the bodyguard power. that was yep oh so yeah. whitney houston sure. the bodyguard a soundtrack is the number one best selling and when you look it ch- it was number one for half the year you know u2 pops in there and other bands here or there number two i won't make you guess number two because it is breathless by kenny j <laughs> I thought you might, because I, I just watched that documentary, so wow. I thought you might. Oh, I need to watch there. that. And then this makes a lot of sense. What number three is? Joshua's his eyeglasses are going to shatter. He's going to be so mad. Unplugged by Eric Clapton. Oh, your favorite Joshua. But that's an album. Yeah. Oh, so we're talking albums. Best selling albums. Yeah. Oh, best selling right. albums. Okay. So I'm the one who said the bodyguard. Breathless, I should know that. Yeah. yeah okay. Unplugged. Gotcha. And you know that's a boomer moment. They always have to have their moment and ruin our fun. 
And then number four, <laughs> Janet by Janet Jackson. So when you look at the genres here, you have like Ode to Classic Rock, you have the weird instrumental thing, you have Whitney Houston, then you have Janet Jackson. Then number five, I don't, I never even knew what this album is, but I think I remember the single, Some Gave All by Billy Ray Cyrus. He had the f- number five best-selling I'm album. Sorry. Billy Ray Cyrus. You can't hear that song in your mind? Some Gave Some All? Some Gave All. I can't either. No, what was his other hit? What was the big? Achy Breaky Heart was the yeah, big Yeah, Achy Breaky Heart. Achy Breaky Heart must have been on that, right? Oh, I'm yeah, I'm sure it was. Achy Breaky Heart was a big hit in 92, but uh, so was um, Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven. So I think there's probably a correlation between yeah. the, the single coming out one year and the album charting, yeah. you know? And then I just got to give you six and seven because they're great. Matt, I want you to promise me that you'll listen to Billy Ray Cyrus's Some Gave All. I mean, and the okay. title already is telling me a lot of information. And I want you to promise me that you won't break my heart, my achy breaking heart. <laughs> <laughs> so number six is The Chronic, Dr. Dre. Nice. Oh, Makes yes. perfect sense. And then number seven, I was like, wait, number seven is really? Pocket Full of Kryptonite by The Spin Doctors. Oh, yeah. Oh, but yeah. there you have you, there you have the '90s. You have the like classic rock thing. You have you have Janet Jackson. You have the Chronic, and then you have your goofy ski hat alternative kind of jammy college kid rock and the Spin Doctors. Anyway, I thought those top seven were really funny. Like, was America getting along better back then? Because <laughs> we were all buying the Kenny well, G album, being like, "All right, we can all take a bath to this and chill." This is actually an excellent segue to what Heather hates. <laughs> you guys know it's always a pretty big contest. There's a lot of stiff competition <laughs> for the thing I hate the most. Was this idea that this that this soundtrack is predicated on that if we just come together we will get along and like find something to love about one another there's a it's it's really interesting Joshua what you said about uh the the disorder title having this like internal title of LA 92 like i i feel like the soundtrack's like fundamental premise is like can't we all just get along and it really like once I started thinking about that uh, while we were working on on this this week's episode, I couldn't get it out of my head. I kept like imagining the worst versions of thought patterns that would result in in like I want to bring together a bunch of like white grunge kids and the cool version of hip hop. And figure out what happens when I just like smash them together because I think it's going to be great. There's like, or is it because it is great? It did turn out. Yeah, there's that too. Like it, like kids like both these things. What if we mixed them up? I don't think I. It doesn't look the way the way they told the way they told the story. And I mean, who knows how much you know hindsight is in this? The way they told the story, it does not sound like this was a money motivated. Thing. Now, it was a hit, and they did expect that it would do well. I mean, the people who put it together 
Happy Walters was like, this is a good idea. This is going to be good. But it seems like more from the sense of like, this is a really good artistic idea. This is a really cool thing that everybody wants to do. And that's going to be good. It doesn't sound like the the idea was, haha, we've come up with an idea that's going to be, you know, worth a bunch. Because it seems like they're all pretty legitimately surprised at what a success it was. It was a, it was a pretty successful soundtrack. Sold a bunch of copies. Had had songs on the radio and stuff. Perfect Movie Soundtrack is a movie that needs its soundtrack and a soundtrack that needs its movie, and they both exist in complete symbiotic harmony, no less or more, without each other. Is that good? Excellent work, Lombardi. It's beautiful. Will we ever find one? Is there one out there? And what is the criteria to become one? This and many other conversations are what you will hear on Perfect Movie Soundtrack. <laughs> Absolutely. In search of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack. We we know it's a holy grail of sorts, right? Like we don't actually believe that this necessarily is out there and we're going to get to it, but it is a thing worth looking yeah. for nonetheless. That's the madness of the treasure hunter, right? The fountain of youth, does it exist? I would be I mean, I think I think we might we might get close at times and I think that would be pretty exciting. Let's get let's get ageist here and see how old the director is. You think he's going to be a boomer? The director went on to have a very successful uh television executive producing career so I think he's fine. Oh. No, but how why isn't his age on I'm looking live live Wikipedia scroll right <laughs> now. How dare Wikipedia not give you a birth date? That's annoying. Well, uh, he probably keeps editing it out every day. Wow. Oh, Jesus. I will say on, on his IMDb, I am, IMDb. He, uh, this is what he says about some of his movies. Predator 2. I'm, I'm pretty immature, really, so it's kind of a laugh. Uh, blown away. Made a lot of mistakes. Ghost in the Darkness. It was a mess. I haven't been able to watch it. <laughs> so it's like, all right. Um, he, good, yeah. 1958. Uh, so he's um, 60-something. Born in Jamaica. He's a white-looking dude. Very white-looking dude, but born in... 1958, so... So a colonizer. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fitting, actually. Becomes a theme in his life, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's like, he's like, I always identified with the Predator in Predator 2. <laughs> All right, we got some other songs here that we haven't discussed. Uh, I don't know that anybody has anything they want to add, but of course we mentioned that Sir Mix-a-Lot and Mudhoney is on this album. Um, a very funny song fun it sounds like they had a great time doing it fatal and therapy is probably my least favorite song on here but i do think it would have been a good song to play during the movie it sounds like a movie song and uh run dmc and living yeah. color is another song that doesn't do a lot for me but um you know uh it's great that run dmc is on here because you know maybe this album never happens if it's not for run dmc and aerosmith that's clearly like where this begins. Yeah, I can't believe we didn't talk about Run DMC and Aerosmith. It's sure. kind of obvious. There's not a lot to say. I mean, everybody involved is like, yeah, that's where it starts. That's where it all begins, you know? 
they did it. Yeah. Also, can I tell you what we know that I will always love you by Whitney Houston was the number one single that year. Can I tell you what number two is by just being like, Joshua, hit the music there. You'd cut in whoop. There it is right there. Oh, that that's going to take us all the way out too. That's taking us all the way out. There it is. We might even fade that into whoever's going to make the next pick and then just fade it right back or, you know, uh, bring yeah. it right back up and, and let that be. Why wasn't out. tag team invited on the Judgment Night soundtrack? We've been looking for a movie that is good. <laughs> I mean, we have not watched a good movie since we started this. Good is relative, you know. Is, uh, <laughs> uh, Pretty in Pink is Heather's favorite movie, so I mean, it's it's good. It's it's just you know, it's yeah, but it's like a worn out sweater to her. It's not like like it doesn't yeah. fit us, right? Like I extended that metaphor. I liked it. Yeah, that's yes. perfect. And <laughs> I loved it. And one of the things that Joshua was looking for was like a director mm. who really gives yeah. a shit about what's going on from like a from like a, a cinematography perspective, um, and who's like really creating yeah. a rich world. And uh, obviously, we we aren't interested in watching a movie whose soundtrack didn't have some kind Ooh, of wait. cultural impact with that cri- with that criteria in mind i think we should watch Boz lerman's romeo and juliet oh wow whoop there it is <laughs> whoop there it is indeed wow i haven't seen that in a long time but i don't remember if i liked it or didn't but i was very affected by it like i i remember having a holy shit feeling that's we, a good uh, one. We we will talk. We will talk more. Let's re-explore about that. The, the tech. The technical title is William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Oh, good. Okay, because I I wasn't sure which Romeo and Juliet they were. Playing, <laughs> so that's good. That's good. It's actually William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. Ah, uh, yes. That that Bob. Keep, keep that typography in mind too, would you please, Joshua? Yes. My heart loved till now. For swear at sight. For I never saw true beauty till this night. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene, two households, both alike in dignity, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, in William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to go check out episodes one and two, where we talk about Pretty in Pink and The Big Chill. You can find us on Twitter at TPMS Podcast. We'd love to hear your hot takes, your soundtrack theories, and, you know, let us know if you have a candidate for the perfect movie soundtrack or even just a favorite. Maybe we'll discuss it in a future episode. And, of course, it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't get to that whole rate and review thing. 
I've been hearing podcasts ask their listeners to do this since the beginning of time, so it must be pretty important. And yeah, if you could help us out with that, that'd be great. I assume. I mean, I really have no idea, but must be important, right? For Heather and Matt, this is Joshua, and we'll see you in two weeks with another episode of The Perfect Movie Soundtrack.